Section 42 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 4, Chapter 6, Waterloo, Part 2. At one o'clock, as the emperor on his mound swept the horizon with his field glass in search of Grouchy's missing reserve, he saw a moving shadow. Not French? Prussians? Yes, Bulow's corps, who had not served at Ligny. It was, he thought, but a single unsupported body, which, if Grouchy moved rapidly, might be caught between two fires and annihilated. But Grouchy was not in sight, and these ominous Prussians, waiting and watching for the advent of Blücher's more considerable corps, hovered on the rear of the battle, still waiting like a flock of vultures. Perhaps at that moment Napoleon ought to have disengaged his armies, retreated as Blücher had done at Ligny, left the ultimate issue for a happier hour. But was it possible? What reinforcements had he to hope for? Delay was all in favour of the Allies. Their reinforcements were the innumerable hosts of Austria and Russia. Besides, the struggle was already begun. French and English were at each other's throats in an inextricable medley. The crashing charge of Erlon's division at one o'clock left the British infantry unshaken. Then came the turn of Milo and his cuirassiers. Who does not know the story of their splendid onset as they stormed the Mont Saint-Jean, riding like centaurs, three thousand centaurs, three thousand grizzled heads shouting, Vivre l'Empereur! Who has not heard how, in the full shock of their furious charge, they came on that sunken lane, the ravine of Ouen, and fell one on top of another in the horrible trap? But the middle ranks and the last gained the plateau on the other side, charging like mad, carrying all before them, the tails of their horses swishing through the tall wheat. Colonel Sour, with six sabre-cuts in his right arm, dismounts while the army surgeon amputates it, and then leaps on his horse again and leads his men to the attack. The Duke of Wellington told me himself, says Jomini in his Campagne de 1915, he told me at Verona, that in all his experience of war he never saw anything more magnificent than the charge of the French cuirassiers at Waterloo. At that moment it was to no French confrère that the Duke was imparting his impressions, but to the incomparable British infantry who withstood the wild onslaught. Steady, boys, he says. What will they say of us at home if we are beaten? There was no thought of giving way. The English never knew when they were beaten. The battle was won by men whose motto has ever been, "'Tis dogged as does it." The French cavalry was as close to us as our own troops, wrote the Iron Duke a little later to Lord Beresford. The moment came when the 5th British Division, reduced from 4,000 to 400 men, could no longer hold its position, and Wellington, seeing his brave soldiers hacked in pieces all round him, told them to fall where they stood, and never thought of yielding an inch of ground, though, as he sighed, night or Blücher alone can save us. Meanwhile, Napoleon was in no less terrible straits. Nay, mad with battle, had led his cavalry charge too soon, at half-past three. The exhaustion of the horses made a further attack appear as yet impossible, 
and the English cannon had found the range. There were now great moth-eaten spaces and holes in the vast furry mass of the French busbies. But the first British line is pierced, the second broken, though the third is intact. Oh, for a good solid regiment of infantry! Ney sends to Napoleon in utmost haste. De l'infanterie, the emperor answers, que voulez-vous que j'en prenne? Voulez-vous que j'en fasse? And just as Wellington scans the landscape for a sign of Blücher, he looks anxiously round, still no trace of Grouchy and his men. They might have disappeared in an earthquake. But the army does not yet guess at the emperor's anguish. The French soldiers had begun to cry, Victoire! A messenger was riding post-haste to Ghent to apprise Louis Eighteenth of the defeat of the Allies, when that cloud on the horizon began to move. The men cried, Grouchy! But the emperor knew better. It was the Prussian army under Bulow. In order to win the battle, he must, at whatever cost, crush the British before the arrival of Blücher, who was probably somewhere in Bulow's rear. The mass of the French cavalry, twelve thousand strong, flung itself again in charge after charge on the English front, carrying at last the English guns, and sweeping with desperate bravery round the unbroken squares whose fire thinned their ranks. Those indomitable squares remained unshaken. Never has greater courage been displayed, neither in attack or in endurance. The rivals were equally matched, for if either was to overcome, some new factor must be added to his strength. At half-past six again that moving shadow on the skyline, and again the soldiers of France shouted, Grouchy, Grouchy, but it was the bulk of the Prussian army under Blücher. Then the Imperial Guard, Napoleon's last reserve, which had taken no part in the battle, was drawn up in two huge columns of attack. Ney himself led the first, a Ney transfigured, drunk with battle and despair, covered with mud, he had been thrown from his horse, his coat pierced with bullets, his sleeve torn from the shoulder, a Ney, wild, gesticulating, shouting, Vive l'Empereur, and the column sweeping all before it, floundering through heavy fields and pools of water, mounted the rise, touched the English front, and fell back, torn, shattered by the terrible charge of the British musketry. Then broke the second wave, advancing with the same fury, rising, engulfing, only to be repulsed and scattered in its turn. By now it was nine in the evening. Night began to fall, all these brave men had been fighting for three days, and at the moment when the guard fell back exhausted, the French beheld the whole Prussian army massed on Napoleon's right, their guns sweeping the road to Charleroi. Wellington seized that moment to make a desperate advance. Those imperturbable, shattering squares began to move forwards. All round, the French now saw themselves hemmed in by those rows on rows of little red figures, no taller than low hedges, which were the British regiments and divisions, and the troops of the Emperor saw that they were turned. From that hour all was lost. Terror, panic, confusion reigned in the ranks of the French. Whole regiments fled helter-skelter in a wild sauve-qui-peut. 
but the emperor's old guards still stood firm in the midst of the increasing darkness surrender cried the british in a transport of pity and admiration damn screamed the french general chambron for thus i venture to translate the unpronounceable oath which polite historians have paraphrased as the guard dies but does not surrender and with a last cry vive l'empereur the heroic grenadiers rushed headlong on their death napoleon was looking on in a sort of stupor they seem to have broken the ranks he muttered as he saw his squadrons tumbling head over heels in their mad rout all was lost he was to write on the morrow by a moment of panic terror and he added with the indulgence of a great captain on sait ce que c'est que la plus brave armée du monde lorsqu'elle est mêlée et que son organisation n'existe plus the very soldiers at his side were caught in the whirlpool and swept away in that hopeless torrent then the emperor gathered up his reins and turning his horse made for the sacrificed phalanx of the guard and would have entered their column but soult duke of dalmatia laid his hand on the bridle stop sire are not our enemies happy enough already napoleon resists and is wise to resist for that would have been his fitting end but soult and the generals drag him on the road to genappe there for a long moment he sits his horse silent motionless deeply brooding then orders an artilleryman to fire off his guns and listens for the last time to that dull roar which has been the music of his life at last he gives his bridle rein a shake and sets off alone at full canter for charleroi on the twenty first of june he was in paris he had been three days without eating he was worn out he had no longer the courage to daunt and dominate the chambers ah mon cher j'étais battu he was no longer the man of brumaire and when both houses demanded his abdication he was too broken to resist lavalette his postmaster-general has left a record of the fearful epileptic laugh with which napoleon greeted him on the twenty first of june the emperor saw the game was up outside in the streets the people and the soldiers two regiments and a mob from the faubourg st antoine were shrieking adjuring him not to desert them beseeching him to lead them against the enemy napoleon remained passive inert if there was one thing he adored even more than power it was order he was afraid of civil war of revolution on the twenty-second he signed his abdication in favour of his son the king of rome he offered the provisional government to serve france as a simple general under their command the government refused finally as blucher's prussians were reported in the neighbourhood he left paris and made his way to the sea his first idea had been to take refuge in those united states of america which were a second fatherland to the children of the revolution but the british cruisers scoured the atlantic so making a virtue of necessity the tracked and hounded autocrat of yesterday wrote to the prince regent announcing that he came like themistocles to seat himself at the hearth of the british people ah why did not the english state in a mood of generous and judicious irony offer him that vacant hall of hartwell where louis the eighteenth had passed his term of exile instead as we know to our grief and shame 
we stranded him on a sun-baked devil's island in mid-ocean on desolate dreary st helena that and the flaming stake at rouen are our two crimes in history we have had our own way of dealing with the heroes and heroines of france and i think it took the blood we shed of late in flanders to wipe out the memory of that offence not like themistocles received with magnificence in persia by the nobler adversaries of the elder age like philoctetes rather left to perish on his lonely rock in the twenty-year-long contest between the revolution and europe the dynasts score the final triumph in france in spain in naples the bourbons reascend their thrones louis the eighteenth comes limping home to france crutched on the armies of the coalition twelve hundred thousand foreign troops again overrun the departments leaving behind them when they retire as a flood-tide leaves its fringe of mud and weed an army of occupation a hundred and fifty thousand foreigners as a sort of royal guard destined to secure the king against a renewal of revolution the cost of their maintenance was added to the war tax of seven hundred millions of francs contributed by france to the expenses of the campaign the insolent irrepressible country appeared ruined at least if not reconciled but military force has never yet been able to long prevent the expansion of a great political ideal and the task of the nineteenth century in france was to be the gradual and sure development of the notion of democracy End of section forty two